Hey there, it's me, Sophia, and I'm so happy to welcome you to yet another episode of the Sustainable Spirit Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Reverend Dr. David Pikashi, a distinguished professor of Christian ethics at Mercer University and chair of Christian social ethics at Vrijja Universiteit, Amsterdam, and senior research fellow at the International Baptist Theological Study Center. Gushi is the elected past president of both the American Academy of Religion and the Society of Christian Ethics, signaling his role as one of America's leading Christian ethicists. He is the author, co-author, editor, or co-editor of more than 28 books and over 175 academic book chapters, journal articles, and reviews. His most recognized works include Kingdom Ethics and Changing Our Mind. His other most notable works are Introducing Christian Ethics Still Christian, After Evangelicalism, Righteous Gentiles of the Holocaust, and the forthcoming Defending Democracy from Its Christian Enemies. Altogether, his books have sold over 100,000 copies and been translated into a dozen languages. For the general media, Gushy has written hundreds of opinion pieces and given interviews to scores of major outlets and podcasts. With his works read around the world and an active lecturing style on several continents, he has cultivated a global impact in the field of Christian ethics. I love conversations where I'm forced to revisit assumptions and rethink what I've heard or been taught, and this was definitely one of those. So, without further ado, let me invite you to settle in for yet another episode of the Sustainable Spirit Podcast. I'm Sophia, your host, and this is the Sustainable Spirit Podcast where we explore how spirituality and ancient wisdom can inspire us to build a more socially and environmentally sustainable world. Now, I invite you to awaken your curiosity and open your heart as you join me on this journey of growth and understanding. I thought we would start out with Maybe you saying a bit about what inspired you to write Changing Our Mind. Sure. Uh, good to talk with you and uh, your listeners, Sophia. Um, uh, I'm a Christian ethicist, and Christian ethicists deal with difficult moral issues is just what we do. Um, I had been teaching and speaking Oh, a little bit periodically about uh, sexual ethics issues from the time my career began in the mid-90s. Um, but I was increasingly dissatisfied with the traditional approach by about the year 2010. I would say that becoming aware of how many people were uh, excluded and hurt, increasingly clear about how, how much people were hurt, by especially the most hardline versions of the traditional anti-gay approach, uh, really, really began to catch my attention. I also got to know LGBTQ people at church and at my workplace where I taught and became more personally aware of their stories and their hurts. And so by 2014, um, kind of at the height of my career and aware that I had the freedom to reflect on this issue without having to be afraid of losing my job, I decided it was my responsibility to, to do that, to take it on. 
So I began uh, writing a series of articles in the Baptist Press, beginning in the late spring, I believe it was, of 2014. I wrote one a week, and that basically became the germ of the chapters that you read in the book. And um, by about two-thirds of the way through the book, I already had a publisher saying, we think you have a book here. Can we publish it? And, and they also said, we think it's really important that you get it out as quickly as possible. We have the capacity to get this into a book form like within a month after you finish the series. That's unheard of in publishing. It does not happen. But they were that urgent about it. And so the first edition of the book was churned out uh, by about October 1st of 2014. And it's been selling and making a difference intensively ever since. So that's the backstory. Um, could you say more about those individual stories that shape your view in writing sure. the book? Um, it's a tragic story and a set of tragic stories. Um, generally, the story is goes something like this. Kids are raised in conservative religious environments that teach that homosexuality is wrong or that being transgender is wrong. Um, and then they come of age and they realize that this is who they are. And they usually try to suppress it for as long as they can. And then maybe it's unsuppressible. And so they finally begin to tell friends or family members, and maybe ultimately their parents that they think they might be queer in one way or another. And then usually uh, the, the family and the religious community is completely unable to process that news and responds with anger, judgment, and rejection. Um, just as one example, a significantly disproportionate percentage of the homeless youth in America are LGBTQ. They're homeless because they were kicked out of their families or they felt the need to flee. That's important data to me. Um, the psychological distress visited upon LGBTQ kids and young adults is sometimes extraordinary. Um, blatant, hateful rejection by the people who are supposed to love us in this world. And there are specific stories that I tell about in my book, um, but there's a lot of them. The system just produces this result. And so I, I said, well, instead of just dealing with the hurt, can we deal with the system itself? Can we ask, does Christianity at least really require this belief that causes this much pain? Can it be reconsidered? And now most people don't feel, most regular believers in a religion don't feel that they have the ability to question the tradition. Either they're not allowed to or, or they don't have the training or the expertise, but I do have the training. And uh, therefore I felt that I should keep training myself and learning more and more and digging deeper and deeper because so much was at stake. And and so, so that is um, 
that's the journey for me. Or just to add to what you're saying, some religions have doctrines of things like papal infallibility, where it's almost heretical to doubt what they're telling you. Right. Um, and I, I had a yeah. I had a follow-up question. So um, yeah, absolutely. Some of these traditional religions have negative views on the LGBT community. Where does that come from? You know, especially from like a New Testament perspective, because I think the majority of things that we see from the New Testament is love one another, love the people who are the most difficult to love. You know, mm-hmm. what what benefit is there in loving your friends, love your enemy? You yeah, know, and I just add on to that. Yeah, that um, Leviticus, I think, that's the, the book where the, the, like, you shall not lie with another male. We don't really follow most of the other rules in Leviticus. So, yeah, I guess it's just adding on to that. It's a bit, yeah, I, I wouldn't know where it comes from. So So let's go into the biblical piece. What I would say is that uh, you only have a small number of verses that can even remotely be directly connected to uh, same-sex relations, and nothing or almost nothing that could be seen as relevant to uh, transgender experience, right, to keep that on the table as well. Um, but on the uh, same-sex activity thing, you do have a few a few verses that seem relevant. Um, the the Leviticus passages are two of them. Um, historically, for over a thousand years, the Sodom and Gomorrah passage was used as as evidence. You know, God rains down fire on Sodom and Gomorrah, and the story is, you know, was that it was because they were gay. That was wrong, but that was the one interpretation. Um, in the New Testament, to tackle Jerry's question, Jesus does not address this issue at all. Um, not directly. You have one extended discussion or fairly extended in Romans, and then possible connections in a passage in 1 Corinthians and a passage in 1 Timothy. Um, grand total, maybe six passages. Um, but what, I, what I've learned from doing this work is in religious communities, you never just have what the sacred texts say. You also have how the sacred texts have been interpreted. So you have a text, like with the Bible. Um, the last words that made it into the New Testament were probably written about 100 CE, so 1900 plus years ago. And then there are no new words added after that. They're not allowed to be because the canon is closed. But you have 1900 years of people interpreting those words. And those layers of interpretation are called tradition. And the tradition is often the lens, usually the lens through which people read the Bible. So so uh, somebody says, I think I might be gay to their parents and the parents, if they know anything about the Bible at all, it's what they've been taught. And what they've been taught might send them to the Leviticus passage or to the Sodom and Gomorrah passage or to Romans 1, 18 through 32. And not first to, oh, well, Obviously, where we want to start is love your neighbor, uh, be specially kind towards those who are in distress, uh, look out for those on the margins, um, never reject your own family member. There's a great verse, Isaiah 58, 7, that says, 
never turn your back on your own flesh and blood. That's a great verse, but that's not what people have been trained to read. What they do is they go to Leviticus or Romans 1 and say, aha, you're a wretched sinner. You probably deserve death or whatever. So, um, so part of my work in the book is to, first of all, try to diffuse the damage of the handful of negative passages, and then to take people directly to the more constructive passages that ought to help us in how we treat everybody. What are some of the key misconceptions or misunderstandings that people have about LGBTQ plus issues, and how do you address them? Um, well, one of them is that, quote, the Bible is clear in its rejection. That's the first one, and I've attempted to, to challenge that, right? Another is that um, LGBTQ people have willfully chosen this path, and so therefore they're actively rebellious against God. That's just not the experience of 99% or more of LGBTQ people. 99% may be an underestimate. Especially in a conservative religious tradition, the last thing you want to do as a 15-year-old or a 17-year-old is to come out to your parents and tell them that you're queer in one way or another because they, you know that the reaction is going to be awful, right? So the, the system teaches religious leaders and parents to have to believe implausible things. And one of the implausible things is our child is in a stage of rebellion against us and against God. That's why they're claiming to be gay. Um, that's just not plausible. And that, I mean, that just isn't what happens. Um, another is the old uh, misconception that, for example, if a boy turns out to be gay, that means he had a bad relationship with his father or something like that. That's uh, schlock of false science or that all gay people uh, prey on children, especially men, stuff like that. People used to say things like that, and that's clearly not true. Um, all kinds of hateful and contemptuous and untrue things have been said about LGBTQ people, and part of the book is, is about saying we need to stop doing that. We must stop doing that. If I can get in here for a second. Yeah, um, I'm curious about the perspective in reverse of gay people towards the church, but also religion and God. I know that it's very easy to hate people or an institution that quote unquote hates you. Is there a way that spirituality or love of God or whatever can be promoted in people that typically are ostracized by the church? Yeah, um, there's, well, first, I, I want to grant the truth of um, the first part of what you were saying, and that is there, when you look especially at the gay rights activist community in the U.S., um, there's a general posture of suspicion towards organized traditional religion because of all the harm and rejection that has been dealt out over many, many years, right? Um, and, you know, 
there tends to be a political dimension where uh, generally liberal activist groups are going to be pretty suspicious about conservative religion because it tends to oppose everything that liberal activist groups are for, right? Um, but there's plenty of spiritually minded and religious uh, LGBTQ people. Um, sometimes they end up in, in more progressive religious spaces. Sometimes they're in you might say spiritual, but not organized religion kind of spaces. Um, and one of the best things to build bridges is to do this kind of work. Um, what a lot of the LGBTQ people that I know who were raised in like conservative Baptist or whatever kind of families, what they want is to be accepted in the religion that they were raised in. They don't want to be Buddhist. They don't want to be liberal Protestant. They want to be Southern Baptist or they want to be non-denominational or Pentecostal or something, they want to be accepted in the community that raised them. Um, but insofar as that doesn't happen, sometimes they leave religion altogether, but sometimes they find more accepting spaces. And part of my work is to help nurture those more accepting spaces. And how do you address the idea of uh, LGBTQ plus individuals being inherently sinful like how would you challenge someone who maybe holds that view um i am persuaded that 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 is a major problem um and in the early stages of this discussion um in the theology about this there was a halfway move that people tried that i ended up i tried but i ended up concluding it wasn't good enough and that was something like Oh, um, being gay, being LGBTQ plus is an expression of sin or brokenness, but it's just not worse than anybody else's sin or brokenness, right? So that was intended to detox negative attitudes about queer people and to say we're all in the same boat, right? And at one level, it is certainly true in good Christian theology, all, Paul says, all have fallen short right? All need God. All are on equal terms before God. All of that is true. But what I have concluded is having a, a same-sex orientation is not part of sinfulness. It's just part of diversity. It's like being blue-eyed or green-eyed or brown-eyed or being left-handed or right-handed or having red hair or black hair or blonde hair. Um, the left-handed one, I think, is especially interesting because I'm left-handed, and I happen to know that left-handers were treated as if there was something wrong with them until relatively recently. Um, teachers would attempt to break kids of left-handedness. That happened to my father in school. And to my grandmother as well, yes. Yeah, there's something wrong with you. And even in the language, uh, I think the word in Latin, sinistre, sinister, is connected to to being left-handed. Um, <laughs> uh, so just as we learned that being left-handed is just different, uh, we are learning that being LGBTQ is just different. Um, it's part of the diversity of the human family. The problem is when we impose a negative judgment on it. So how, do you, how did you go from, uh, I guess, viewing it as like a sin, but 
a sin in solidarity with all the rest of us who are also living in some kind of sin to not being sinful. Because it seems to me, from what I've learned about the Christian uh, wisdom culture, right back to Augustine, that sexuality and any expression of it is sinful, just entirely. Um, well, that's a separate issue. And, um, but you're, let me go to the first question. It took a while for me to get there. Um, in the book, I think the most important move that I make theologically is the chapter on creation. Actually, I think there are two chapters on creation. And it's our, it's our Christian, and I would say Jewish and Muslim, understanding of how God created the world that is ultimately at stake. Um, partly based on a traditional reading of Genesis chapter 1 and 2. The idea is that God made only two genders, male and female, and they are only to be with each other, period. Um, now, there isn't teaching in Genesis 1 and 2 that explicitly says anything else is bad or sinful or wrong, but you add it to those other verses that I mentioned, like Leviticus and Romans 1, and you have a traditional account. Anything else is wrong. It's sinful. Um, but it's when I interrogated the role of the Genesis account in Christian theology and ethics that I really began to be in a space to reconsider. Um, and how many times Christians have gotten tangled up in trying to make too much of Genesis 1 and 2 to explain everything in the world. Um, for example, from Genesis 1 and 2, traditionally Christians were taught that women are inferior to men and that Eve is responsible for human sin. If you know the story, right? Eve gets the apple or the fruit and she gives it to the man and he sins after her. Um, uh, this underwrote centuries of sexist misreading of, you know, women were morally inferior and then, and, you know, whatever. Um, and also the account of creation that gives us like seven days. It was very difficult for Christians to accept an old earth and uh, uh, a story of earth or of the universe over billions of years because they believed that, well, it had to be in seven days and the earth had to be young. Um, so our problems at the intersection of faith and science go back to um, asking Genesis 1 and 2 to be more than it is. And I, I would say that the sexuality issue in that sense is, is the latest uh, iteration of a faith and science problem. In your book, you have a, a quote that really was really striking to me um, that said the struggle over LGBTQ rights is a battle in Christianity is a battle for the soul of Christianity itself. Could you explain what this means to you in a little bit more depth? Yeah, um, I, I just over time, I gradually came to believe that there's a lot at stake here. The people on the other side believe there's a lot at stake here too. But when I listen to what they think is at stake and compare it to what I think is at stake, there's an irreconcilable difference. 
and the implications that they draw from the more traditional view, I think they just bear bad fruit. It's bad. It's a bad direction for Christianity to go in. It's a direction of uh, judgmentalism and exclusion of a vulnerable population. It's a direction of injustice. What's and the it, difference between the two views that you mentioned? Uh, the traditionalist view is that we must not change our minds on LGBTQ inclusion because it's a violation of God's will and it it normalizes sin. And my view is the, is, is the opposite, as you know, from, you know, from what we've been talking about. Um, mm -hmm. And it also tends to lead to concrete, like, political um, differences, like trying to ban same-sex relationships or marriages or trying to block transgender care or um, uh, even just the demagoguery and the, and the um, hateful rhetoric towards queer people, uh, which I think is dangerous and wrong. So, um, so I, that's why I would say it's a struggle for the soul uh, and within the soul of Christianity. How would you navigate the tension between the LGBTQ plus rights and then just the religious freedom to, and the freedom of speech, I, I guess, to just have certain beliefs and express them. Yeah. Um, I, I have emphasized a voluntary process of conversation and reconsideration within the churches, not state mandating of my view, right? So a lot of what I've done over the last nine years has been to be involved in conversations in churches that are ready to have that conversation. But churches that are not ready to have that conversation, that are never going to change their view or not anytime soon, that's, that is their right. That is an expression of religious liberty. However unfortunate, I think the consequences might be. Um, so the state is never appropriately going to tell pastors what they can preach unless they're preaching murder or something right um but the 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 latitude for freedom of the pulpit for free speech and for freedom of belief is very very strong in the u.s and it should be there are boundary line issues that have come before the supreme court religious liberty cases never stop like gay couple wants to have a baker bake a cake and the Baker says that would I can't do that. That happened in Colorado, right? I can't do that because it would violate my conscience. Supreme Court sided with the Baker. Uh, now their understanding of of businesses being able to discriminate on the basis of um, their belief, religious beliefs about same-sex relations. There's real problems here. I mean, how wide is this going to be? You know. Um, you know, and we have a precedent during the civil rights that businesses are public, not just private. And the decision was made related to race that businesses would not be permitted to discriminate. Um, that's why you can't, you know, a restaurant cannot discriminate on the basis of race, nor can a, a apartment complex. So eventually, I think, I mean, the tension there is never going to go away. Right now, this conservative Supreme Court is bending over backwards to allow traditionalist religious 
individuals, businesses, and certainly churches to to do exactly what they want to do. Um, there are some tensions there, but but uh, at the level of what local churches preach and stuff, that freedom is not going to be impinged unless it poses an active threat to the survival of people like, you know, we need to go out and kill the gay people, you know, then it's a different situation. That's hate speech, incitement to murder, right? So you, you mentioned a little bit earlier, um, I think liberal, Protestant, um, what are some of the denominations that tend to be a little bit more friendly to LGBT, you know, especially if, if, if I or someone I know, or I'm, I'm 15, 17, I'm trying to find a, a new home because my current denomination is very strict. Where can I start looking? Um, there are, uh, uh, well, um, Unitarians, um, United Church of Christ, most Disciples of Christ churches, many United Methodist churches, most Episcopal churches, um, there are liberal Baptist churches, liberal Presbyterian churches. Uh, some denominations are in the process of splitting even right now over this issue. And so there's going to be acceptance in the United Methodist Church, and there's going to be a spinoff group that's not going to be accepting. Um, they're not hard to find, in, at least in most decent-sized towns. A little harder in the South and the more conservative regions. Yeah. What about... And I know that... I know that Pope Francis has tended to be a little bit more um, friendly towards the LGBTQ community than than predecessors, and I, I'm sure there's a lot of controversy within the Catholic Church there. Um, do you see the Catholic Church evolving or changing a little bit in the future as maybe more people leave the Catholic Church and go to these other denominations, or... Are they going to stick to it even if there's only nobody else left? Um, Pope Francis's tone has been much more kind and welcoming, um, but he's not interested in in doctrinal change. Um, and I don't think there's going to likely be a pope who's more open-minded than he is in my lifetime, at least. So um, I don't anticipate doctrinal change there. The Catholic Church... Um, Eastern Orthodox as well, um, deeply rooted traditions that take the whole structure of traditional thought very, very seriously with a high degree of authority. It's very hard for such traditions to change. Um, so no, I do not anticipate substantial change. So there is a contingent in the Catholic Church that would like to see such change. I know people in those groups. You know, in, in such environments, it's not going to be, hey, can we start blessing same-sex marriages or whatever, but can we at least provide a more accepting and humane environment where people don't feel rejected and, and the pulpit is not used to attack people? And that would be true of, you know, most Catholic churches are safe spaces in that sense. The priests are not interested in doing uh, campaigns against LGBTQ people. But that full acceptance position that I've arrived at, um, I don't see the Catholic Church organizationally getting there anytime soon. And what about these different churches and traditions do you think has led them to be more accepting? Well, there's, uh, I'll tell you a couple different answers to that. I mean, the conservatives would say they're less committed to the Bible. They're less committed to tradition. They're more loosey-goosey theologically. Um, they're, they're willing to compromise with the culture. Um, and so, so they just surrender 
No, that's not what I believe. I mean, that may be true for some, um, but but I would say um, one thing that goes back to the 100 years or more to the origins of the split between conservative Protestants and more progressive Protestants is respect for science and experience. So the liberal Protestants were also far more likely to accept the theory of evolution than the conservative Protestants were. They're far more likely to uh, take seriously a contemporary biblical scholarship and the methodologies that are sometimes a little rough on traditional beliefs about the Bible. Um, and they're also off, often more likely to explicitly say that human experience matters so that if a group of people tell us something, we're going to listen to them and take them seriously. We're going to factor their voices into our doctrinal development, um, whereas conservatives are more likely to say, no, nah, the only thing that matters is what the Bible says. And so if, if 10 million, 100 million, a billion people tell us that we're wrong, if we can't see it in the Bible, we're not going to bend. Yeah, I, I remember one of the things that you mentioned is about reinterpreting scripture. Um, so I, I guess it's always a challenge because it feels like one of those things where everyone can interpret it a different way, but who is the right interpretation and how do you know that it's the right interpretation versus just this kind of relativistic approach that you just try and fit into the time. And so, I, yeah, I know it can be really difficult. Um, yeah. Um, can and, I say to them that, yeah. that just that one one way you can tell the difference between specific kind of communities is what they do with this issue, right? Um, when the Protestant Reformation broke from Catholicism, perhaps the main basis of the break 500 years ago was over what the what authority would look like. And there was a transition from the authority of the church uh, to the authority of the Bible. Um, so Protestants said, we're going we're gonna to do the authority of the Bible. And that everybody has the responsibility to interpret the Bible, to read it, study it, and interpret it for themselves. But what the Catholics immediately warned them about was, well, what that's going to mean is every church is going to have 100 popes, right? 500 popes. Everybody's going to feel that they have the right to their own interpretation of the Bible, and it's going to be chaos. And to some extent, it is chaos on the Protestant side because people feel like they can pick up a Bible um, and, uh, and interpret it for themselves. Um, the danger is, and anything goes, craziness. So in every community, even the more liberal Protestant ones, there's usually traditions of interpretation as well as people who are especially respected as Bible interpreters because of their training, clergy and scholars and stuff. And so, um, but of course, what the Catholic Church does, Eastern Orthodox too, to resolve this is to say, while we're perfectly happy for the lay people to read the Bible, we want them to, the, the authority, the authoritative reading of the Bible comes from the top. We decide what it means, not you. That deals with the Protestant problem, right? But that also means that if there's a groundswell of 
pressure from the people for reconsideration, it can take centuries for things to be rethought. Another thing that you mentioned, the idea that there are LGBTQ people who are trying to live morally upstanding lives and religious lives. How, what are the challenges that they face and how should they approach this idea of interpreting scripture in a way that also takes into account their identity? Yeah, it's the same basic landscape. Like if you're, let's say you're a religious LGBTQ plus person, um, then you have to do the same reading of the Bible and the same examining of the tradition as anybody else, right? Um, but of course, it's much more existential and personal. A comparison might be, um, let's say, the issue of violence, right? Um, is it ever okay to, to, to kill anybody? Um, that's an interesting theoretical question if you're a professor sitting in an office. It's a little different if you're a soldier in a war, right? So when soldiers study the Bible to see what it has to say about violence, it's very personal for them. That's how it would be for LGBTQ plus people. It's very personal for them. This is their life. Of course, I want to get back to something you said other, earlier about Augustine and sex. Sexuality is everybody's experience, and so everybody has to deal with it. And so in that sense, this is everybody's business. But and the fact that the church has had a strong anti-sex strand is, a, is, is a, an inheritance of the whole church. But, but in general, in, in the modern church, the anti-sex thing has largely faded. Even the most conservative folks say sex is fine as long as you're married. But for LGBTQ people, sex is never fine in the traditional view. It's never okay. And so, so therefore, it's a very different kind of conversation for them. Unless they change, unless they come to reject that view, which is what many have done, but not all. I guess, like, just thinking about what you were saying about this, the scriptural interpretation and the different way you interpret it. At what point do you think it would be acceptable for us as a religious community to just agree to kind of ignore certain parts of the Bible. <laughs> um, Is I that think, ever okay? <laughs> I think it 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 happens routinely, but it's not admitted. Okay, an example: if you've read uh, like the Book of Joshua in the Old Testament, um. There are multiple examples where Joshua and the troops are commanded to not just take a city, but to kill every living thing in that city. Men, women, children, and animals. Kill them all. And in a few cases, they actually do that. Now, we don't, those of us who teach the Bible uh, for a living, we don't ignore that it's there. We know that it's there. We have to talk about it. But we don't say, aha, notice how in Joshua 7, they burned the city to the ground and killed every living thing. Therefore, that's what we should do now. We don't do that. We find a different way. We don't interpret the Bible that way. We have other resources in the Bible that lead in some other different directions. So there's lots. I mean, the Bible, I said in the book, the Bible has over 31,000 verses. A significant chunk of them are not cited at all 
Um, and some of them are at least implicitly set off to the side as reflections of an ancient culture or not relevant to our times or problematic in one way or another. So and there's lots of examples of that. So, but what I think is there's a lot of times not much honesty in conservative religious communities that that actually happens. And I guess on one level, it's um, useful to talk about how we can kind of come to this, uh, like a shared view, a shared acceptance. But I guess the reality is that there's always going to be people who dissent. So how, how would you approach this bridging divides between two different perspectives on this dilemma? There are uh, processes of dialogue um, that have been attempted in, and are still being attempted in religious communities all the time. Um, one of the things I've been asked to do sometimes is to go into a church and help to facilitate those processes where there are people on different sides or people who aren't sure. And so they hash it out, talk it out. Um, often people learn from those, usually people learn stuff from those dialogues, but that doesn't mean they change their mind. There are a lot of reasons why people stick to the positions that they hold. Um, sadly, there's a handful of issues, maybe one in every generation that I'm aware of that, that I've studied or many generations that are like, they become really divided and they seem really non-negotiable to people on, on opposite sides. And at least in Protestantism, what happens is a lot of times people split, churches split, denominations split. That's why there's so many thousands and thousands and thousands of different kinds of churches. <laughs> Sometime a long time ago, they got into an argument over something they couldn't agree, so they some group left. And then 15 years later, the people in that group got in an argument and they couldn't agree, and then a group left. And then 20 years after that, that's how Protestantism works. <laughs> um, and some of the, when you think about some of the things that people fought about, they seem pretty silly or not relevant to us now. But when they're, when they're in that fight, it seemed like the most important thing in the world. Right now, at the very moment we're having this conversation, this issue is that fight for a lot of different church groups. Mm -hmm. Hopefully, hopefully yeah. it'll pass. Yeah. Let me, let me ask here a question. So, um, again, I like to think both sides. So from the other perspective, is there anything from a sexual ethics perspective that shouldn't be allowed or should everything be accepted? You know, is there a line to be drawn there? Should that even be the purview of religion? You know, I argue in the book um, for, for some real lines and boundaries. Um, uh, I believe that sex is supposed to be interpersonal and covenantal um involving a serious commitment between two people which is best expressed in marriage so that makes me a, a conservative on that right i also have had pressure from people suggesting why not open it up to multiple partner polyamory and i have argued that that there's nothing in the christian tradition 
that speaks positively of that. And there's also a lot of practical reasons why that's a bad idea. Um, and so I still have, to be technical, a dyadic covenantal marital ethic. Two people covenanted together in an honest commitment, presumably or preferably marital, giving themselves to each other in that context. Um, there was a reason historically, uh, um, one very important reason why the church taught that is because heterosexual sex is procreative, at least it risks the birth of children. And because children are completely vulnerable, um, they, they, are, they need to be protected by a structure of norms that uh, helps to do the best that we can do to be sure that they have parents who love each other and love them. Um, and we'll take care of them up to as long as they don't need to be taken care of anymore. Um, but I still think that the vulnerability of adults even is such that casual, easy come, easy go, have sex whenever for with whoever, uh, that it doesn't work well for people. It's not good for people. So I have adapted my ethic to include um, same-sex relations, but I have not otherwise changed my sexual ethic. Mm -hmm. People resonate with that. They understand. Even, yeah, and even so within the LGBTQ community, so we, we talk about it as if it's this one big homogenous monolith, but I would imagine even within the community, there's different levels of philosophy and belief and et cetera. Mm -hmm. So do, does the church even have enough nuance to think differently about the different groups within that larger group or? It's, it's hard. And you asked at the beginning, you asked, uh, does the church even have the right or the authority? And in many cases, the churches have stopped trying to say anything much because people aren't listening or whatever, right? You know, um, but, but yeah, I mean, I'm a pastor and an ethicist. So people routinely ask me, what do you think the rules should be? Right. And because they want some guidance. You know, so I offer the guidance that I have and give the reasons for it. Um, it is true that in the LGBTQ plus community, um, there are some who have embraced a covenantal marital ethic and others who have not. Once before there was gay marriage permitted, what we were saying to gay people was. You can never make a covenant of marriage ever. It is banned. And so therefore, I think that teaching contributed to some chaos um, on the sexuality side for, for LGBTQ people, right? Nothing was permitted. So why should anybody attempt to play by any rules? Yeah, I heard something interesting actually about that, um, that someone, I forget who argued that in this question of should marriage be allowed in the church for people who are gay, they said like that it just didn't make sense because marriage as a covenant was about procreation. Um, and I, I want to move on to talk about spiritual friendship that you talked about in your book, but I was just wondering if really quickly you could comment on that. Like, what is your take on that idea of what marriage is? Well, marriage should be a covenant, but it's about more than procreation. Mm -hmm. Anybody who has been married for any length of time and even people who get married, when people get married, maybe they have the idea of having children. Maybe, uh, maybe they don't. Uh, but it's a covenant of shared life. It's a covenant of 
um, shared shared projects for life together. Um, yeah. So the, the covenant is about living together towards a certain vision of life. Procreation is part of it. So it's too narrow to say that the what defines the marital covenant is procreation. But it is true that that is a reason people have argued against gay marriage because they've mm -hmm. said you can't be procreative naturally. Of course, yeah. a counter to that is within with uh, reproductive technology, it can be procreative. Um, and uh, gay and lesbian couples can and do raise children of all types, including adopted and foster children. So mm -hmm. it can be about family yeah. too. Is there a difference? Is there a difference in concept or perception between a quote unquote civil union versus marriage? Is one more special or is it just all semantics? Um, that distinction seemed to matter um, earlier in the debate when um, some were saying, some on the conservative side were saying, okay, we'll grant civil union, but not marriage. Um, but that went away once the Supreme Court um, uh, just said marriage is open to everybody. The discussion of civil unions pretty much went away. Mm -hmm. um, so as I mentioned, you discussed the concept of spiritual friendship in your book, which I, I think I was drawn to it because we all experience friendship, but the idea of like it, a spiritual friendship it being on another level was interesting to me. So I was wondering if you could first elaborate on what spiritual friendship is to you and then say more about what are the practical steps people can take to achieve this type of friendship. I had almost forgotten that I had raised that in the book. Um, I think that I must have raised that in the context of, it has been proposed both by LGBTQ people and to them, why do you have to have sex? Why do you have to even be married? Can't you just have really, really dear spiritual friendships? Um, and so there is a version of the a semi-traditional view that says, why don't we say to, to queer people, you can't be married, or at least if you are married, you can't have sex. All you can be is really, really close spiritual friends. And there are some uh, folks, even in the LGBTQ community, who have that's what they're attempting. Not many, though. It's a, a romantic relationship has a physical dimension. Um, it's spiritual and physical. I would say that, uh, I mean, what we are looking, what most of us are looking for as adults, at least, and we start looking for it as adolescents is the whole package. Somebody who, who connects with, with us in every relevant dimension of our lives, spiritual, physical, intellectual, vocational, even avocational. You know, and I like my, my wife and I like to read classic novels and to travel to Europe. Um, that's not especially spiritual. Maybe sometimes it is, but it's a way that we connect, right? And we go to church together, so we connect that way. Um, and we both care about the Christian work that we're both doing. So in other words, it's it's multiple levels, right? But but the you know the separate idea that that we're that the deepest part of the human being is you might say the human spirit, and that spirit as it relates to God who made us. 
and that we would want to have at least some people in our lives who can be friends to us in that zone, who understand us at our spiritual core, who help us to be better people, who maybe help us to be connected to God or the realm of the spirit in better ways. Um, that's some of the things that I think I would mean by spiritual friendship. And I think, you know, maybe even from adolescence on, we know that we would like to have people who who we are that close to, that connected with, and who help us to be the best version of ourselves. So that's that. your very interesting question. That's what I think of when I answer it. And what can people do to put the things that you talk about in your book into practice? You mean the whole overall book? Yeah, the whole thing. Um, personally, one thing that I believe in is we need to set boundaries on the low level as to what kind of attitudes and behavior we're going to be okay with with people around us. So if you have a friend at, at school who is throwing around anti-gay like derogatory language, I think you have to, just like somebody drops racist language, you have to call them out on it. You have to say, no, no, that's not okay. It's just not okay. So we have to enforce what I would call minimums of decency, minimums of humane and dignified behavior. And by the way, I think that's true at the public level too. One reason I would never vote for a politician who uses hate speech is because they're teaching millions of people to violate those minimums of decent behavior, right? Um, at a higher level, I think we need to, when people do find love, like gay people, we need to celebrate with them just like we would with anybody else, you know? So mm -hmm. happy for you. If they invite us to their weddings, we say yes, right? Um, uh, and and we, we learn to celebrate living in a world that has this kind of diversity. Um, and for me, I wanna be a part of churches where acceptance is not being debated. I wanna be a part of communities where that has been settled. So that's important to me. So those are some ideas. Yeah. Yeah, that was a really nice place to finish off. Um, in the last few minutes, I'd like to do the quick fire questions. Yeah. That are, a work in progress. So if you have any suggestions for how to make them better, I'm open. Um, so the first one is, if you live to be 200, what's one thing you would do differently? Um, I would say I would um, try to have more fun and be less uh, work focused. Um, what is one misconception about your field or area of study that you would like to debunk? Uh, that ethics is just a matter of opinion. It's more than that. Um, what's the worst advice you've ever been given? <laughs> um, it probably was go to a Southern Baptist seminary so that you can have a great career among the Southern Baptists. That was, that was probably some pretty bad advice. Um, what is the most underrated spiritual teaching you've come across? I think that the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, 
deserves a whole lot more attention because it it sure it sure tends to yield good results and it's easy to remember the golden rule mm -hmm. okay the last one is claire booth loose once told president kennedy a great man is one sentence what's your sentence i hope it would be david gushy offered uh teachings about the way of jesus that helped people to love Jesus and love everyone around them. That's really nice. Okay, thank you. All right, those are great yeah. questions. Those are really, really good questions. Thank you, I appreciate it. If you made it to the end of the episode, thank you so much for listening. I'm really happy to have shared this conversation with you and I hope you found it as insightful and as perspective shifting as I did. And hopefully it'll even lead you to think more about this issue once you leave the podcast. If you're interested in learning more about David Gushy's work, you can check out the show notes for a link to his website and some of the work that he's done. Also in the show notes, you'll find a link to the Green Also Green website, which will allow you to check out some other episodes of the Sustainable Spirit podcast, as well as some articles that I've written on different topics relating to environmental and social prosperity. And you will also be able to leave comments on ideas that you want us to explore in the podcast or in articles. You'll also be able to subscribe to the newsletter to stay updated on future episodes, which will be coming out fortnightly. And last but not least, you can also follow Green Also Green on Instagram, which will also allow you to see updates on future episodes. And regarding this podcast specifically, you can support it by leaving a review. That will really help to get it out to the world. Also by sharing it to friends or family or enemies that you think might uh, value this conversation or get something out of it. It's still a new podcast, so this really helps. With that said, I hope you keep asking big questions with a big heart, and I will see you next time.